Well, good morning. Maybe starting a little differently than we do normally. If you're new uh, to Living Hope or visiting, we uh, often will reflect on and partake in communion at the conclusion of our service. But we wanted to do something a little different this morning to uh, prepare us for the passage that we're about uh, to study. We, we're back in our series in the book of Ephesians that we've titled Built Together, a study on this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus to explain to them the, the wonderful mystery of God's grace, to pull back the curtain, as it were, and explain to that church, and specifically to the believers there, those who had already trusted Christ by faith, uh, what happened when they put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And so Paul, under the, the power, the authority, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pulls back the curtain and says, here's what God did for you in Christ. You were by nature children of wrath. We were all enslaved to our corrupted desires, to, uh, to, to living in our own ways. And, and yet God, who is rich in mercy, uh, made us alive together through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Paul uses that big idea, the idea that both Jew and Gentile, uh, insider and outsider, have been brought together not by merit, not by their own sense of righteousness or accomplishment, but by the grace and mercy of Jesus alone. That, that big idea is what God uses to build the church together, united by faith, built up by grace. And so last week, as we got to chapter 3, uh, Paul goes on a, a, a bit of a detour from what he had been explaining, and he begins kind of addressing perhaps an, uh, an unspoken or, or a, uh, an anxious response to what he has said. He, he anticipates the objection that maybe some of those in attendance would say, hey, hold on a second, Paul. If grace is so great, if God is so merciful, why are you in prison? Why are you suffering? And so Paul jumped in in chapter 3, verse 1, and said, uh, because of these things, I, I need to remind you, like, I, I don't want you to lose heart as I suffer. I want you to see how in the midst of my suffering, it's the, the mystery of grace that allows me to encounter the mystery of suffering such that I can endure and so that you too can endure so that you don't lose heart. Now, Paul goes from that explanation now to what we often see happen in this letter, a prayer, an announcement. So because I've explained these things to you, I'm now praying this for you. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
So let me back up uh, to two Sundays ago, two, not last Sunday, the Sunday before. Uh, I preached those first 13 verses under kind of that big theme or that big idea that Paul's talking about, uh, how we endure suffering with a knowledge of, 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 of the mystery of God's grace such that we don't lose heart. And so I preached on suffering, and then Monday I woke up, and I could feel my heartbeat in one of my teeth. I thought, well, that's kind of that's strange. Tuesday, I could feel my heartbeat in all of my lower teeth. And by Wednesday of last week, I was in abject pain. And so I called my dentist. I was already supposed to have an appointment to get some, some work done. And I was like, hey, I think what you said was going to go bad has now gone bad. Uh, and he's like, okay, I need you to come in. So I came in on, on Thursday, massive abscess. They, they had to, to lance my gums. I won't get into the details. Um, I spent the better half of week before last, just immobilized with pain. And the good news is I got to look forward to once the infection was gone, getting all three of the teeth that were infected pulled, which happened on Wednesday. And so now I have a temporary bridge in, um, or it's, you know, my old man dentures. So if you hear a lisp coming out a little bit this morning, I'm still learning to talk with a bunch of fake teeth in the front of my mouth. Now, I say that to say I preached on suffering two weeks ago, and then that happened. Today, I want to try to preach on blessing and see what happens. <laughs> you wanna... Unfortunately, I'm committed to teaching. I say unfortunately, obviously in jest. Uh, I'm committed to teaching the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse, which means, guess what? We're still talking about suffering today. But the good news is the Apostle Paul, as he's done throughout in the, the letter uh, of, of Ephesians, he, he gives understanding, but then he leans into experience. So we saw this back in chapter one. Paul said that when I first heard of your faith, to, to this, this collection of, of, of newfound believers in Jesus, a church that had emerged, that was uh, made up of Jew and Gentile, pagan, like, occult, weird practices in Ephesus, and, and Jews who had followed the Old Testament to the best of, the, of their abilities. Paul, those two people coming together now through faith in Jesus. Paul says, look, uh, because I had heard about your faith, I haven't ceased to pray for you. And I prayed specifically that you would have a knowledge of the power of God. And we talked about this way back in chapter one, that the word for knowledge that Paul uses there is not just a knowledge like a cognitive understanding. He didn't pray for them just to wrap their minds around the power of God. It was a knowledge that was based in experience. He prayed that they would experience the power of God. And now as he opens up chapter three and he says, look, let's deal with the elephant in the room. I'm in prison. And so any rational person who's hearing this good news message that I've been preaching would probably stick a hand up and say, wait, hold on. If God is so gracious, why is this guy in chains? If God is so merciful, why is this guy awaiting execution? And so Paul says, we face the mystery of suffering, this, this thing that befalls all of us in a broken world, challenge of trying to understand what's going on in our lives as the world seems to deteriorate around us. We look at that mystery and we don't get an answer to that question, but God has given us an answer to the question of his grace. And it's the, the, the mystery of grace that God can be favorable to us, that he can love us despite our sin, despite the fact that we were his enemies, that enables us then to face the mystery of suffering. And so what we see here, as Paul kind of has explained that in those first 13 verses, now we see him uh, 
exercising, practicing a spiritual discipline that emerges as he considers, like, this is what happens when we suffer. So here's what I do next. For this reason, he says, I bow before the Father of all the peoples of the earth. In other words, I think what he shows us here is when he ends that first section, chapter 1, verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart, he says. How do you not lose heart? You pray your way through the mystery of suffering. How do you endure when the complexities of life, the, the things that you just can't wrap your mind around, the hardships, the trials, the difficulties, when those things come breaking in, how are you going to make it? Paul says, well, for this reason then, I bow my knees before the God who is the father of every family in heaven and on earth. And so I want to show you three things today, but I'm just going to be realistic here. I'm probably not going to make it through two. So we'll do maybe point three next week, but we'll see. Maybe God in his grace will let us get all of this in today. But three things from Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus about the way you and I go through this world amidst trial, hardship, suffering, and difficulty with an eye towards the, the mystery of God's grace. The first thing that we see is what I just simply would like to call the, the posture of prayer. And when Paul looks out at the challenges that are before him, trial, possibly execution, unjust trial, unjust execution. It's not as though he deserves what is coming to him. He, he pivoted from being a power broker in the world that he was living in to now being a servant of the Lord Jesus. And that has brought upon him all sorts of difficulty, namely being in chains, and he says there in verse 14, for this reason, I what? I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, when Paul faces the intensity of, of, of life's struggles, when he stares at the, the abyss of suffering that is before him, his instinctual response is to reorient the direction of his body. It affects the way that he postures himself before the Lord. And John Stott says in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. Therefore, we could say, Prayer expresses desire. Or maybe a better way to say it is, if you really want to see what's on your heart, what's buried down deep in your soul, look at your prayer life. Look at the, the, the action that, that, that corresponds to, to the challenge that is in front of you. And so Paul models here for the church in Ephesus, when he looks at what is in front of him and when he asks for the church to not lose heart, his instinct, his next step is to bow. To, to take on a posture so that, such that his prayer life is reflective of how someone can, in fact, endure all sorts of suffering. Now, two things about the posture of prayer that I want to draw attention to today. Two things that I think his bowing is meant to signify for us. The first one is bowing is always an act of surrender or submission. Bowing is always an act of surrender or submission. We, we talked about this. We, we, we did a study to start the year called Let's Get Started, where we were looking at various spiritual disciplines that have shaped the faith and the discipleship of the church uh, for 2,000 years. And, and we opened up with the, the, the idea of prayer. Prayer is um, perhaps the, you know, 
arch discipline for us, the thing we give ourselves to, to commune with God and, and, and to, to walk with Jesus. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, as we saw there, uh, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We talked about that being a, a, a prayer of submission or a prayer of surrender. Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And I think Paul's action here of falling to his knees before God, is not, it's, it's not a commandment that we have to pray that way, but it is a, an evidence of, of a life that is submitted or surrendered to God's will. Now, this, this ties in directly to what happens when we, when we encounter suffering. When, we, when we're up against trials and difficulties, we can wage war against God. We can shake our fists at the heavens, shouting at him, why are you letting this happen to me? Or like Paul, we can reorient ourselves such that we come under his authority. When we position ourselves low, we embody a different posture in our hearts. Paul assumes, I believe, that this, posi- this posture reflects his request. You bow before a king. You humble yourself before someone who is more powerful, more, uh, more knowledgeable, one who is all-knowing. You, you come into the presence of such a being under that authority. And so Paul's posture of prayer is one of surrender. In other words, I would just suggest to you this morning, if, especially if you came in and, and life's been particularly challenging for you, if you're in a season of suffering, if, if you're dealing with the breakdown of the body or the breakdown of relationships or whatever may be going on, prayer is a practice that is meant to strip us of our egos it removes our, our pride from us because we're humbling ourselves by coming to a God and remembering we're not him. We need him. We're dependent upon him. The suffering in our lives may be alleviated by him or may not, but in, in any instance, we're, we're coming to him as a subject who bows, who, who surrenders, who submits. And so your posture is but a reminder of that. I don't know if you've bowed in prayer lately. I don't know if you've been on your knees or, or, or been before the Lord in a low estate, but I would just offer this to you this week as you look into following Jesus in the week ahead with whatever you've got going on in your life. Perhaps reorient, reorienting your posture and your position before God would tweak your heart in, in a proper direction. Perhaps it would put you in a place of submission or surrender such that you could come to see things, maybe even from God's perspective. And that's why this is important. The posture of Paul's prayer in bowing before the Father from whom all the families of the earth are named is also a sign of trust. Bowing is not just coming under authority. Bowing was a sign of submission, but it was also a designation that I believe that the one that I will lower my head in front of has my best in mind. It's, it's an act of trust to lower one, one's head before an authority figure with more power because it operates on the assumption that the other partner's not, going to, partner's not going to strike me down. When I bow before God, it's a sign of trust. God, I believe that you are for me and not against me. I believe that you have blessing in mind. I believe you have my flourishing in mind. I submit and surrender to you because I trust you. When you're suffering, this can be really hard. This can be incredibly difficult to think, okay, this is what's in front of me. I don't have answers for this. I don't know why I'm going through this. But perhaps reposturing yourself before the Lord would be a way that it develops and deepens your trust that God is for you and not against you. Just as we talked about when we looked at prayer in that series to start the year, Jesus begins the Lord's prayer with, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
And we talked about how prayer puts us in this position, but under, underneath both the, the fatherhood of God and, and the sovereignty of God. Our Father, who is in heaven, you're both imminent and you are transcendent. You are both over me and beyond me, and you're also for me and with me. Prayer is an act of being reminded of that truth. It's submitting to and trusting that God can reframe your understanding of what you're going through. He can reignite his passion in your heart for for his purposes, for his will. If you enter today with a life full of challenge, if you came in today with a certain measure of heartache or pain or loss, consider bowing. Maybe the Lord's invitation to you today is to deepen your trust in him by reorienting your posture before him. Perhaps a position of humility opens your heart up to the presence of God and the power of God. And that's where Paul takes this. Look look on past verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And here's the content of the prayer. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul doesn't just teach us here about the posture of his prayer life. He also shows us about the hope of his prayer life. There are hopes bound up in going before God. There there are ambitions in submitting and surrendering yourself to your heavenly father who loves you. The first one that we see, and maybe perhaps the preeminent one, is that Paul is is praying that the church at Ephesus would experience the presence of Christ. That they would experience the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, this is super interesting to me. Because if you'll remember, all the way back in verse 1, Paul has already said that he's, he's talking to believers here. He's talking to people who have trusted Christ by faith. He says, when I first heard of your faith, I prayed these things. So he's not, he's not telling people, look, if you will trust Jesus, then you'll have his presence in, in your life. Paul's saying these are people who have already trusted Jesus, but there's an avenue to gain access to more of Christ's presence in their lives. In other words, there's something about, Paul says, or shows us here by praying that, 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 that whenever we're tempted in, in the midst of suffering to disbelieve that God is with us, when in the midst of suffering and trial, we, we believe the lie that God has forsaken us or abandoned us. Paul says that when he prays, he shows us that when he prays, it's, he's asking for more of Christ's presence to be known and experienced. I think if we walk this out to its logical conclusion then, Paul's teaching us that sometimes suffering comes into our lives in order to open us up to the possibility that we can experience more of Christ in our lives. That we can have more of his nearness. That we can know for certain that he is with us. That God allows us to go through certain things so that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. Theologian and New Testament scholar Ben Witherington has an interesting take on this as well. And he talks about this from this perspective of uh, this isn't just about, you know, we often say when we come to faith in Jesus, or at least we teach kids this in vacation Bible school once upon a time, you're asking Jesus to come into your heart. Well, yes, but for the believer in Christ, as you encounter suffering, there's a way that you experience more of Christ in your heart. 
more of his presence in your life. Witherington says it like this. He says, Paul is not referring here to the initial dwelling of Christ in the new convert's heart. Rather, Paul is praying for the continuing presence of Christ within the Christians through faith. The Greek verb here signifies literally to make a home or to settle down. So he has in view a more permanent presence. That Paul is praying for this for those who are already Christians means that this is not automatically the case for converts who have already experienced the presence of Christ initially in their lives. Rather, this happens through faith. Indeed, it is contingent on the exercise of faith. That is, as they trust him, he makes their hearts his home. So according to the Apostle Paul, when you encounter hardship, trial, suffering, difficulty, when the the temptation exists for you or for me to, to lose heart because we don't know why we're going through this, that moment, Paul is praying, is an opportunity to be awakened to the potential that God, the God of the universe, longs to establish his residence in your heart. He desires for you to know him to, to not just have a knowledge of him, but an, ex, an experience of him so that you, you, ex, you know that he's with you. I, I think of the way that Jesus accomplishes for us in his death on the cross, that Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane and prayed, God, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in that act of surrender, surrender and in that act of humbling himself before the will of God, we know that Jesus was shut out on the cross so that we could be brought in. Jesus cries from the cross, from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when we, when we suffer, we don't feel that that sense of desperation to that degree. We, we know that he is with us, that he won't leave us or forsake us. We experience him in new ways, in profound ways in our lives. We experience the dwelling of Christ in our hearts. Paul says, I don't want you to lose heart. I'm praying that you would in this moment through Christ have him dwell in your heart through faith, which means that Whatever you're up against today, you've got to see that as the battlefront for faith. The question is not, when will you get through this? The question is not, when will this trial end? The question is not, how can I you know, maneuver or manipulate my circumstances such that I'm happier? The, the question is, will you, in the midst of suffering and difficulty, surrender to the will of the Father and then experience, by faith, more of Christ in your life? So Paul teaches us. There's something unbelievably profound about that because in that experience of Christ's power, he says, uh, Christ's presence, he also says, and in that you will be strengthened with his power. He says, I'm praying not just that you have his presence, but in his presence dwelling in your life, it also gives you more power. And so he says it in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The indwelling spirit of Christ can provide us with unthinkable power, not the power to dominate. This isn't a power to get control. This isn't a power to be in charge. This is a power that enables us to persevere, a power that enables us to to make it in faith to the end, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the sort of power, Paul says, that we get to experience. It's the power that we see in the book of Revelation. I've taught Revelation here multiple times at Living Hope. It's a really confusing book to a lot of folks. Let me kind of boil it down for you if if, if I can. Um, It's not about how the church wins by taking over the world. 
It's about how the church wins by Christ coming back and redeeming the world. And it's how the, the Greek word hupomone is the word that's used from beginning to end, how we endure because the power of the resurrected Jesus sits on us and dwells within us. Such so that when he returns for us, we are an empowered people to worship, to serve, and to bless his name forever. It's, it's the opposite of the ways of the world when it comes to power. Worldly power is survival of the fittest. That's not what Paul is praying for here. Paul is praying for uh, the enduring power, the power that, that causes us to thrive even as we suffer. The sort of power that we see demonstrated here. Paul is in chains. Google when you get home. Google what a Roman prison was like. Google what it looked like for someone to be chained up awaiting most likely execution and trial in, in, in ancient Rome. And then think for just a second, how in the world can a man in those conditions pray this sorts of prayer? He's experiencing the presence of Christ. He's filled with power, power from on high, power that does not belong to human beings in and of and by themselves. It's the great paradox of the Christian faith. It's when we are weak that we experience the sorts of power. It's what Paul would say to the church in Corinth. I am pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. I'm always being given over to the death of Jesus so that in me, the life of Jesus may be made manifest to you. It's when I'm weak that he is strong. That's what we're being invited into when we're invited to come under the authority of our Heavenly Father, to, to bow before Him, to submit and surrender to Him in trust so that we experience the presence of Christ and we're filled with the power of God Himself to endure. Now, that's not the end of the hope of prayer, though, because now Paul goes on an elaborate, expansive way of explaining what happens next. When we're filled with power, he says, something else happens in us, in our inner being, in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, here it is, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Catch what he just said. It's, it's almost incomprehensible. He says that you would know something that can't be known. You would know the love of Christ that is an unknowable love. That's why the knowledge that Paul is talking about here is not simply just what rattles around as neurons fire in your brain. It's that there's an experience of, of love that you can't really comprehend unless you go through it. And Paul uses some really interesting language here to talk about that we would comprehend this incomprehensible love. He, he uses measurements, so height, width, depth, breadth. Um, he, he talks about being rooted and grounded. There's two possible meanings for what Paul's doing there, why he would borrow that language from the ancient world. I think both of them apply and both of them are unbelievably beautiful. So the first possible meaning is this height, width, breadth, depth language was language to, um, to, to the occult in the ancient world, it, it, especially in a place like Ephesus, where we know that there are dark spiritual practices. We know this from the book of Ephesians, where these seven sons of Sceva, these demons kind of overtake a man. They leave him bloody and naked. It's, it's a fantastic story. If you haven't read it, Acts chapter 17 through 20, uh, we know that because the temple of Artemis was there, there was all sorts of uh, occult practices, pagan practices in Paul's day going on in Ephesus. And often what would happen in those practices was 
uh, when spells would be cast. I think, I guess, Harry Potter. I never got into that. My daughter loves it, but that's a thing. When spells would be cast, they would often be cast in, in dimensions. And those dimensions would be set out by uh, height, width, breadth, and, and, and depth. And so Paul, I believe here, may be, in fact, borrowing language that those who had converted to the faith from that sort of background could hear and understand, oh, oh, I know what he's doing. But, but he's not casting a spell. He's saying in, in the expanse of the universe, we want, to, we want you to experience God's love like that because his love covers that. His love is beyond the scope of your small experience. It's all the, the, the cosmos. The second thing Paul's probably doing is that as we said in the beginning, the, the Ephesus is a place where there's tons of tradesmen and women. Again, we know this from the book of Acts. They were building, there were silversmiths there building trinkets to honor the, the goddess Diana. And whenever the gospel broke out and revival happened, they started losing their livelihood. So they manufactured a coup to kind of run Paul out of town so they wouldn't lose market share. So there's, there's tradesmen and women. There's construction workers all throughout Ephesus. They had to build the temple to Artemis after all. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so Paul here is using language that carpenters would use, that masons would use, that stone workers would use so that they can understand, oh, when I'm trying to chart the course of architecture for this thing that I'm building, I look at the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth. And Paul says, yes, and that's what God does in his love. I want you to experience the height, the width, the breadth, the depth of God's love for you. That, that you can be rooted and grounded in that. that. That would be the very foundation of your existence. And that you would know it even though it's unknowable. Even though it's incomprehensible, that it would rest on you. So Paul here paints a picture of knowledge that defies the working of our cerebral cortex. He says that there's a way of knowing that you can't really give language to. There's a way of knowing that you have to go through. Several years ago, um, 2013, I still consider it probably the hardest year of my life, uh, most likely. In fall of 2013, my, my daughter had had multiple complications regarding a heart surgery. Uh, she was at a Bonner. She nearly died on a couple of occasions, one of which involved an emergency surgery that kept us up all hours of the night. While she was having heart surgery, my dad died back in Oklahoma. So I had to leave my daughter in the hospital and go back and bury my father. And in the midst of that, often folks would say, what was, like, what, was, what was going on there? What was that like? And I've always had this metaphor. I've probably told some of y'all this before. I, I had this experience, especially the night that my daughter Reese was back in, in surgery. And we didn't know if she was going to come out or not. We didn't know if she was going to make it. And I said, it felt like, this is the language I could come up with. It felt like I was like, when you've seen in a movie when someone's in an elevator in a really tall building and the like, cable breaks and they're just in free fall. I said, it felt like that. But I had this really strange assurance that it was never going to hit bottom. That somehow we would be kept and caught. I don't, it's a weird metaphor, but it's seriously, I felt like I was in complete and total free fall and I felt like God was with us and he hadn't abandoned us. And even in the midst of why is this happening, that question wanting to bubble up to the surface on a minute by minute basis, I knew God was with me. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. That you would know really something that's unknowable. And sometimes the only way you get to experience that is by going through something you would have never chosen to go through. 
that in the midst of that, the height, the width, the breadth, the depth, the love of God would be that which you are fastened to. It becomes your foundation. You get rooted in that. You have a, an indwelling assurance by the presence of Christ himself that God loves you and that he's for you. And so I want to end today praying like this for y'all. I don't think that this is just Paul rattling off a random prayer. I think this is for the church to experience this. That we would, that we would get a, somehow a measure of this in our own hearts and lives, e- even today. So we're going to end maybe a, a little bit different. This is part of the reason why we took communion to start, is just to kind of set the stage for the fact that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night when the worst possible thing we could ever imagine happened, the only sinless human who had lived the life we were supposed to live, now died the death that we deserved to die, the night that he set the table for his disciples so that they could rethink what suffering means. We want to just enter into a time of ministry now. I want to enter into a time of prayer for y'all. So I want to just, we don't do this regularly here, but I want you to just bow, if you would, bow your heads. And we talked, sermon tells us, the passage tells us bowing is appropriate, bow your heads. Uh, Enter into maybe a time of, of just reverent reflection. And I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of bold this morning. I'm going to ask you to put up a hand if anything I'm about to say resonates so that I can pray some specific prayers for you. Uh, the first thing I'm going to ask is for those in the room, perhaps this morning, your head bowed, that um, you just feel abandoned. So when you hear the scripture say, I'm praying that you would experience the presence of Christ. Would any of y'all this morning say, I need that? I need a, thank you. I see hands going up. Thank you. If you, do, if you want to put a hand up, thank you. Just a way of saying, yeah, this is, this is what's going on in my heart and in my life right now. Father, for those this morning who feel abandoned, who perhaps are staring at a situation or a circumstance that seems um, overwhelming, that induces in their hearts worry and fear and anxiety, Jesus, I pray that just as we saw this morning, we come under your authority. We, we bow before you. And I pray, God, for those that raised a hand now, that you would, you would give them a sense of your presence. That even stumbling across this passage this morning, maybe they would be reminded that you haven't forsaken them and that you're with them. And in the, the moments to come, the days to come, uh, Lord, would you give them reminders of that? Holy Spirit, let them see that you're at work in their lives. Let them, let them know that you're near. This morning, if, if you came in and you just feel weak, just overwhelmed, um, the, the, perhaps the pressure, the anxiety, the trial, the suffering that you've been going through just feels like it's too much and you need power. Do you raise a hand for that? Yeah, lots of y'all. Thank you. Father, for those this morning um, who confess their weakness, God, first off, would, would we all be willing to enter into that frame of mind? Because it's when we're weak that you're made strong. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for them this morning that an outpouring of your power would be demonstrated. Lord, that you would give them a strength that defies explanation, one that they know comes uh, not from their their ability to scheme or to strategize, but, but comes from your spirit. 
and that you would sustain them, that you would give them that endurance, that perseverance that enables them uh, to be shaped and formed by suffering in a way that makes them more like Christ. And lastly, this morning, if, um, if you're in a spot where you just do not feel the love of God, and it's an easy place to enter into, to, to, to think, man, if, if God loved me, I wouldn't be dealing with this. If God loved me, I wouldn't be struggling with this. Uh, I want to pray specifically for you this morning that the height, the width, the breadth, the depth, you could be rooted and grounded in a love that is unknowable and maybe even somehow supernaturally be flooded with that love this morning. If that's you, would you put a hand up? I just need to know that God loves me. Thank you. Jesus, you, you embody the love of God towards us. The way you gave your life for us in your resurrection and even in your ascension, reminding us that you're with us, that you've gone to prepare a place for us, that all that we will encounter, all that we will endure um, will be but preparation for this great reunion where we will see and experience and know for certain then that which feels unknowable. And so for those this morning that lifted a hand, God, I pray that the, the power of your love would rest on them. God, that they would feel the embrace of the Holy Spirit. They would, even in their, their being, some saints of old have said, feel the warmth from your love because you are that good and you are that loving and you desire for us to experience it so that we'd be shaped and formed by it. God, I pray for all these folks in all these ways that we would know and experience these things because you're our Father who is in heaven who loves us. In Jesus' name. Amen.